we come together uh, as disciples of Jesus to hear his word and be oriented to it, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to start in verse 16. You can follow along with me on the screens if you don't have a Bible with you. I'm reading from the ESV. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to take a moment and pray again, and then we're going to dive into the word together. Uh, Father, thank you for your word and promise. Thank you for your challenge. Lord, we lay before you. We trust you. We thank you that, that you're a good physician. Lord, you are gentle. You know our frame. A good physician doesn't use a chainsaw, but uses a scalpel. And we lay forward before you, Lord. We trust you to cut exactly where we need to be cut and to heal us so that we can walk for you and live for you all our lives. So come and do your work by your word and spirit now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're talking about discipleship a lot around faith. We had a team last year that did a lot of work to put together uh, a model that helps us to understand what discipleship is and how we can practice it in our life together. You'll see these kinds of things around. But today, we're just going to dive into where that comes from, and it comes from Christ. It comes from the scriptures as we think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? We say we're a disciple-making family. What does that mean? It starts, I suggest, by thinking about the story that you're a part of. What story are you a part of? I, I taught literature for a couple years, and uh, one of the, the things that I taught students was to look for the plot and the characters and the setting, three basic elements of any, any story. There's other elements. We could talk about point of view and on and on and on, but plot, character, and setting. Think about your story. Where is it heading? Where is the story going? What is the plot heading to? What is the conflict that you have to overcome? And are you overcoming it alone? Are there other characters involved? Are you aware of the other people in your story? And who is the hero of your story? Some of us know when you gather for family functions and that kind of thing, there's some people that tell the story and they're always the hero of the story and you're just waiting for them to get to the point about how they're the hero of the story. You know, maybe that's you. God bless you. <laughs> but who's the hero of our story? And where are we? Is it just a coincidence that we are where we are? Does it matter that we've been placed in Loveland, Colorado, does it matter, this place where we are? I, I think as, as Christians, we need to be mentored in this way to think about our story and our place 
in the world. Greg Perry uh, discipled me when I was in seminary. He's written a little book called The Drama of Discipleship. And in that book, he talks about discipleship as gospel show and tell. It's an apprenticeship in gospel show and tell. We're learning to show and tell our Lord Jesus together. But this isn't something that we do alone. We're aware of the other characters involved in the story. As our Lord directs the script, we're trying to, to act it out in his world, on his stage. And Dr. Perry writes, the script of scripture is written for ensemble, not solo performances, for a lifetime of learning Christ and imitating him with and before others. A lifetime together learning to follow Jesus, to imitate him, to show him to the world, to follow his script as he directs us we're like his, his theater troupe, learning to act out his drama of redemption where we are and to improv on his script. Many of our neighbors don't have a story like that. Uh, we think about uh, another play, Macbeth, where uh, Macbeth, in the midst of great suffering, what does he say about life? What is his story? He says, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. It's, it's pointless. It's all pointless. And maybe you felt like that in the middle of suffering. But some of the good news of Christianity is that we're a part of a story. <laughs> that we're a part of something big. We're a part of God's big gospel purpose in the world. We get to be disciples together following Jesus. But honestly, I wonder what story we're telling I don't think that we always get our story straight as Christians. Sometimes, frankly, we ignore the script entirely that God has given us. He's laid out his story for us. And sometimes we ignore that. And you know what happens in a vacuum? A vacuum gets filled. And so the little bit of gospel, the little bit of Bible story that we have in us gets mixed with a cultural story, with cultural narratives. And this happens everywhere. Certainly it happens in the United States as well. We mix together Jesus plus culture plus politics plus whatever agenda we might have plus individualism plus consumerism. And the result is that we read the script badly and we show the world a story that is not the story of the scriptures or a story that's tweaked, a Jesus that's tweaked. But disciples, we aren't the authors of the script. We're apprentices. We're learning to read the script, to imitate the ways of Jesus who's directing us in the world and to showcase that to the world on every stage the Lord puts us. Now, every disciple of Jesus has wrestled with this and has struggled with this. Go back to the, these first disciples Jesus is calling in Matthew 28. There, there are 11 disciples who are coming to meet him on a mountain he's directed them. And verse 17, look what happens next. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. They hesitated. Jesus has just risen from the dead. And they're, they're hesitating. They're doubting in front of him. This is an encouragement to me. 
that the Lord could still use folks like this. But think about their story. They were part of a large story of God's purpose in the world. He had promised them a kingdom and peace that would fill the whole world, that he would send the Messiah, the anointed one, and all nations would come and bow before him in the vision we see in Daniel chapter 7. His peace would extend to the ends of the earth as we see in Isaiah 9 as we recite every Christmas. But that's not what they saw and lived. They lived nation after nation, walking through their land, subjugating them, and they were living under Roman rule. Think about the reality of that. Where was God in their story? Where was their script going? And how could they advance toward God's kingdom together? Well, in their day, there were all sorts of ways. But Jesus is coming to them, one who was just crucified, and he's about to call them to follow him. And you can imagine a little bit of hesitating, a little bit of doubting. Do I really want to follow this guy? Did you see what just happened to him? Do, do I really, do we really want to follow the crucified Lord? Well, in God's kindness, they do. <laughs> and you know what? The same thing that happened to him happened to most of them. But those became the best years of their life to know and follow Jesus, full of purpose and dignity. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Folks, it means to live by his script. And we're going to see that means biblically, relationally, and missionally, disciples are committed to following Jesus. We're going to pray, and then we'll, we'll dig in. Uh, Father, uh, bless us, bless us as we seek to make sense of discipleship together. Make this not just a word, a buzzword, a catchphrase. Make us disciples. Amen. What's the script we live out as Christ's disciples? What is that script, folks? It's the Bible story. It's this, the ancient word of God. And disciples here in Matthew 28, they're standing at the climax and the cliffhanger of that story. You see, it all started in the beginning when God created all things of nothing and called them good. We see him in six days working like a master craftsman, making all things. And on the seventh day, he rested. And by the end of that time, he's created all of the creatures of the earth, all of the, the beauties that we get to enjoy here in Colorado. And he's created as the, the touchstone, as, the, as the, the most beautiful crowning piece of his creation. Humankind in his own image, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These ordinary local people that God had taken, he'd taken Adam and he had placed him in a garden, in some dirt. And in that local dirt, he had global purpose and global dignity to one day fill the earth with a picture of the Lord. This is the pattern of the story from the beginning. The Lord longing to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. That's where the story is going from the beginning. But what happens? What's the conflict in the story? Sin. Rebellion. 
The folks the Lord has placed into his story rebel against the author of the story. And when the snake comes in, more crafty than the other critters, we find that Adam, who was called to work and to guard God's garden, he just stands by while the snake lies to Eve and tells her that God is a liar. And she takes a fruit that God forbid and she eats of it and she gives it to him who was standing right there with her. And he takes and eats of it. And we find that their relationship with God is broken and we find that brokenness, that sin infiltrating the rest of creation and being passed through generations so that our inclination of heart isn't to trust in the Lord, but to rebel against him, to hide from him apart from his grace. But what is the Lord like in the midst of this? Again, we, we see a pattern that the only hero in this story is the Lord. In Genesis 3.15, although Adam and Eve have sinned so horribly, the Lord makes a promise. Of all people, he makes it to the serpent. And he says, I'll put enmity between her offspring, talking about Eve, and your offspring. He, your, your offspring, will bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. He's going to crush you one day, buddy. Just you wait. And the rest of the Bible story, we're waiting to see that offspring come. We don't see him come in Genesis. We're still waiting as we read into the rest of the Older Testament. But then along the way, we come to Act 3. So we had creation, we have rebellion, and then we have Israel. God forms a people, starting with Abram. In Genesis 12, as we just read, a local family with global purpose. What does he say? In you, all the families of the earth will find blessing. All the nations will be blessed one day through your family, Abram. How could that be possible? He couldn't have children. He was an old man. His wife struggled with fertility. How could this be possible? Well, all things are possible with God. He's the hero of the story. And he gives him a son, Isaac. And from him come generations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 who come from him and a whole people of Israel. But we find that they are enslaved in Egypt. This people is already a blessing to the nations as we see in the story of Joseph, God fulfilling his promises. They're in slavery. The Lord sees them and he knows and he goes to them and he raises up Moses for them to lead them out of Egypt. The Lord does this with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great wonders and miracles, leading them out. And he brings them to himself at Mount Sinai. And he says in Exodus 19, starting in verse four, he says, you yourselves have seen what I've done to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And now, therefore, if you'll hear my voice and obey my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession in all the earth, for all the earth is mine, and you'll be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're going to represent me to the whole world. They'll see you, and they'll wonder about the awesome God who redeemed this little people of no account and preserved them through the ages, who blessed them with a beautiful way of life and love. Of course, they would screw it up. And so the Lord provided for them pictures of sacrifice, the Lord paying the cost for their redemption, for their forgiveness, showing what it would cost, what it would require to crush the serpent's head. Well, the people, 
They receive a land. They live there. They continue to mess things up. The Lord continues to pursue and keep his promises. He gives them a king, David. In 2 Samuel 7, 14, King David is promised that his son would reign over a kingdom forever. That now the blessing that was promised through Abram is going to go to all nations through this kingdom. But what happens? That kingdom falters in the folly of all of David's children, <laughs> all of those kings. God's people were led astray. Even the best of them was imperfect. And so they're wondering, where is God? This is the story that the disciples have inherited. They're wondering, when will this kingdom come? And then the king comes, Jesus. Act four of this incredible story. He comes onto the stage. What, what does it say in the beginning of Matthew? Chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's bringing this story to its climax, to its fulfillment. And we find him come on the scene and he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven, it's come near, it's arrived, it's right here in front of you, turn. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, I've come to fulfill them. And how does he do it? He dies. That wasn't on our script. That's not what we wrote for you, Jesus. We had the plot written for you. Come and kill the Romans. It was easy. But you didn't do it. He was following a different script. They didn't anticipate their Messiah being the Lamb of God who would come to take away the sins of the world, but that's what God gave them in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, this same story Jesus is bringing to fulfillment. And one day, he'll bring about a new creation. But in between, his disciples are at the climax and the cliffhanger. The climax where Jesus says in verse 18, the risen king who once was slain but stands before them in a whole resurrection body, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How are we biblical? Where do we take our cues? Who directs us in the way we read and apply the Bible? I suggest to you today, it is Jesus. He is our king. We look to him. We seek to enter into his community. We seek to obey all that he's commanded us. We seek to go among the nations, wherever the Lord calls us to show forth his words and his ways because he is the hero. He is the climax of the story. And now with this cliffhanger, how do we follow him? We don't have a, you know, a Loveland 316, how do I live life today for every moment? We have to learn to improvise on the script. How do I love my enemy in 2022? How do I love my neighbors who always have their garage down, their door shut, their blinds down in 2022? Maybe it starts with open up, opening up my garage and my door and my blinds. But we have to learn to improvise on the script on whatever stage the Lord places us and to do so mindful of his script and of him who has authority over all things, who's calling us. 
among the nations to make disciples biblically. He says to follow me, to repent. And so we're called to learn of him, folks. Disciples are biblical. It's his story. Secondly, disciples are relational. And we see this hinted at strongly here in the Great Commission. As he says, y'all, we lose it in English, y'all make disciples. It's a second person plural. And how do we do that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus had called 12 disciples to himself. Tragically, one of them betrayed him, Judas. And we find that they'll replace that 12th with Matthias in Acts chapter 1. Because 12 was important. Jesus is reconstituting the people of God and sending them into the world so that the promises given to Abram would find their fruition, that all the families of the earth would find blessing through Jesus Christ. All the Gentiles, not just this one ethnic people, but all peoples of the earth. Just as the Lord planned all along. And the new sign that God gives to his new covenant people, baptism, reflects this reality, not just for little boys, but for boys and girls. There's no male and female. There's no barbarian, Scythian, or slave. But as many as are baptized into Christ belong to Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. This is a relational seal. Baptism is a sign of our unity in Christ. Paul writes this in Ephesians 4 to a people that are tempted to separate over cultural issues. He says, you have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We think very individualistically about baptism. It's just about me and Jesus. I'm suggesting to you today that the original disciples did not think like modern Americans think. We have to learn by the Holy Spirit's power and grace and community to think like disciples in relationship as the people of God. It's, it's kind of like being a Cards fan. So I was married, and that meant I had to be baptized into Cards Nation. So uh, she's from St. Louis, and so I started having all these red t-shirts, and I even got a jersey given to me. And we would celebrate our devotion to the Cardinals by watching games together at home. And, and we do this as a family. And we'd even renew our commitment to the Cardinals by going a few times a year, putting on the colors, going together with all the crowd and worshiping, I mean, watching the game. And, but we would do this in this rhythm. And in this way, a whole people, a community, is coming together for the cards, cheering them on. Now, there's Fairweather fans, of which I am one, who, when it's like 2011 and the cards are winning the World Series, it's awesome to wear red. But then in, in seasons when they're struggling, you know, like some teams can around here, uh, <laughs> uh, it's harder to wear those colors all the time, to show up. I think baptism can be a lot like this. We enter into Christ's discipleship community through baptism. We receive this incredible sign and seal of belonging to Christ and his people. Remember, Jesus came and he was baptized in the water among sinners. And what, is, what does John the baptizer do? He doesn't want to baptize him, but Jesus says, no, but, but let it be for this is to fulfill all righteousness for all the people who would follow Jesus into the water, all of those sinners. 
Jesus fulfilling our story for us, just as Israel walked through the waters of the Jordan, but imperfectly fulfilled its calling. Jesus now is going to fulfill the calling of his people. Follow the script where his people failed. And we're baptized into his story. That's what Romans 6 says. We're baptized into his death. We're baptized into his resurrection. Our sin laid in the grave. And we now live in his life. We're under his grace together. We wear the colors of his baptism. Uh, Again and again in Acts, we could see the same pattern. Believers being baptized. Households being baptized. Looking to Christ. The question is, do you wear these colors? If you're a Christian, I've said this a couple times, I don't say it just to make you mad. I say it because it's true. If you're a a believing Christian and you haven't been baptized, you're like a zebra without stripes. It just doesn't make sense. It's the beginning of discipleship. It's step one as we follow the Lord Jesus into his community. If you don't believe in Jesus, I totally get it. You don't believe that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus. You don't believe that he is one with the Father and with the Spirit. You're baptized into one name. Did you notice that? It's not plural. This early indication of a confession of the Trinity already in the mind of Matthew and on the lips of Jesus. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You don't trust that? Well, look to Jesus with me and consider if his claims are true, you'll be thankful you looked into him. But if you do trust in Jesus and you haven't been baptized, I was thinking about this. Why, why might that be? There, there's a couple main reasons that I can think of and that I've heard from you all. The first reason is this. You don't want anything to do with Christ's church. It's like you're in Chicago, in Wrigleyville. You don't want to be caught dead with a Cards jersey on, you know? but you're living in 21st century America and you don't want to be caught dead wearing the colors of Christ's church, being identified with Christ and his people. Because you know those people. They're ridiculous. They're hypocrites. They've hurt you. They've hurt your family. They've hurt your friends. Right? You don't want anything to do with Christ's church, but I I just want to call you back to Jesus. Again, what did he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not to to us, to him. (laughs) And did he want something to do with his church? Seems like he did. Ephesians 5, when he's giving instructions to husbands on how to love their wives, Paul talks about Jesus. And he says this, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with washing of water by the word. Paul is likely using baptismal imagery there to show how Christ washed his people. He cares for her. He loves her. He calls her his own, though she killed him. He says, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. And he welcomes all to come to him, who look to him in faith and repentance. 
Some will say, well, what about those fair weather fans who, who get baptized and then they never show up again? Well, what about them? Who cares? Follow Jesus. Quit making excuses. Look to Jesus. Follow his plan for your discipleship. Go in the water. <laughs> Let him seal you with his promise. Take that moment to express who he is as your Lord. The second reason I hear is a very American reason. And it has to do with being exceptional. If you ever make a rule, note this. If you're a leader and you ever make a rule about anything, people will find an exception. And in America, we all need exceptions because this is the land of have it your way, right? But, but, but I want to have it my way. And, and we even will theologize about this. So one of the most beautiful moments in scripture, I just listened to one of the most incredible gospel sermons uh, I've heard in a long time from a brother named John Dixon who preached on, on Luke 23, 39 to 43, the thief on the cross. And our, and, our, and our friends will say, well, what about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized, so I don't have to be baptized. The thief on the cross in his testimony to the ages gets to demonstrate the riches of the glory of God's grace. There's no depths that it won't plumb. But unless you want to follow the thief on the cross and live a life against God's will, the thief admitted he was there justly. He deserved to be on the cross. He deserved the execution that he was receiving. So if you want to follow him and walk away from God's law, find how close you can get to the edge and tiptoe around the edge and do as little as possible and just hope at the end to be crucified next to the savior of the world, Go for it. But why not look to Jesus? The thief on the cross didn't say, follow me. Jesus did. Follow him into the water. Receive the sign of belonging to God and to his team. Put on his colors and wear them day to day, week to week. Wherever you go, you're baptized. You belong to God and to his people. Represent him wherever you go. That, that moves us to number three. Discipleship is missional. We're going to spend some time talking about that participle going. But the main verb of the Great Commission in Matthew 28 verse 19 is make disciples. It's actually one word in the original language. Make disciples. Second person plural imperative verb there. Make disciples. Make learners, apprentices. Form people that follow and obey me and are my witnesses in the world. Discipleship is missional. And what is the mission? Make disciples of whom? Of all nations. And this brings us back to the story, the big story that, that God has been working in his world since the beginning taking local people and local dirt and sending them out in his world with large global purpose. All nations are in view. The Lord cares not just for us, but for all. This is a challenge to us at times. We lose sight of this. We're in Loveland, Colorado. Just a quick geography point. We are 
just shy of 7,000 miles from where Jesus gave this commission, 6,800 some miles. We are not at the center of God's plan in America. For the last 200 years or so, God has been doing a work sending missionaries from the West. And it's been a, a beautiful work in many ways. There have been some complications as people that study world missions and, and church history will know. But one of the things that, that we've struggled with is we've lost sight of the fact that we are the ends of the earth. We're like the thief on the cross. We don't deserve to be here. <laughs> Christ is the center and he sent from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are at the ends. And frankly, right now, we need folks in East Africa and in South Asia to come and re-evangelize us because you know what, folks? We're getting, we're getting lost and more lost as a culture by the day. And the church is on fire around the world. We're the ends of the earth. And Christ is making disciples of all nations, even us. And so I invite you today to take hold of that, to become a disciple of Jesus, biblical, relational, missional. But this will mean that we're gonna have to get really clear on who our director is and what our script is. Back in 1981, there was a, a denominational family called the United Presbyterian Church. And this denominational family upheld the ordination of a person. That's something denominations do. We ordain people. But this particular person, this man, he denied the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. He denied the miracles of Jesus Christ. He denied the divinity of Jesus Christ. He denied the historic bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He denied Christianity and yet for some reason wanted to be a pastor. And they upheld his ordination. And so after that meeting, many churches went out and said, this isn't a Christian church. And they formed a little band of churches called the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, committed to the essentials of historic Christianity, to the gospel of the saving grace of Jesus Christ and to his word. But 30 years went on in that denomination. The UPC joined with another denomination, became uh, a larger denomination. And I got to pastor, I had the privilege of pastoring a church that came out of the PCUSA following a decision 30 years later in, in 2011, when the denomination decided to start ordaining people who didn't follow the script of Jesus with respect to our sexuality. That marriage and sexuality was to be enjoyed between a male and a female, one man, one woman in a marriage union. This denomination moved away from that and this was a very visible thing for churches. And something that I've reflected on is, why did the churches leave then? Something that I wonder is, were they being more discipled by the concerns of the culture wars as they were being discipled on the script that they learned from whatever news channel they watched more discipled by that than by the concern of who Jesus is and what is the word of God? What is foundational to my life and to our life as disciples? They were 30 years down the road walking a different script and now all of a sudden surprised that many people are denying Jesus' words 
about marriage from the beginning. He made them male and female. We're so surprised. How does this happen? Then, 10 years later, in 2021, there were supporters of the former president who were marching on the US Capitol building. And I thought again about this dynamic. What script are we following? I'm not here to relitigate these events. They're being litigated plenty. And you already think what you think. But as your pastor, I ask you, what does this have to do with Jesus? Did Jesus say to go and seek to kill your enemy and curse them? No. He said, love your enemy and pray for them that persecute you. This is an abomination. Whether it comes from left or right, the church is being tempted by humanist teachings in the academy and the media and by reactionary political forces, all of which are yearning for power and, pl and payback. And, and in the midst of all this, we've recast Jesus, the director, the script author, into the role of supporting actor to pursue whatever our little agenda is. And he's not fulfilling our script, and we get really mad. So we try to take power for ourselves, like Simon the Zealot. We try to run away from community like the Essenes. Forget all of you church people. We're going to go off on our own. Or we just give up on the historic teachings and the miracles of scripture like the Sadducees. We're just going to hold to the ethics. We just give up on God as we find him in the scriptures altogether as we find in some of the neighbors of Israel. Or do we go back to Jesus again, church? As a pastor, there are times when I see the darkness of our time and the people and the confusion. And, and I feel like Frodo, he was marching toward Mount Doom and he was bearing this ring of power that had to be destroyed to destroy the dark forces that were destroying his home in the Shire, his little place. And so he was banded together with, with a friend, with Samwise Gamgee, to walk across Middle Earth to Mount Doom and Mordor. And the weight was getting heavier and heavier. No one could agree. <laughs> All of the forces against them. And he says, I can't do this, Sam. And Sam, a good friend, they're a family by now. I know it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. Sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, and hear this, Sam says to Mr. Frodo, I understand, I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. And what do we hold on to today, folks? What do we hold on to as we, as we see so much darkness encroaching in the world and in the West, the church seeming to crumble 
Well, we hold on to the Great Commission promises. What did the Lord Jesus say in verse 18? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not a little bit of authority. All authority. He is the king. He is the one who is governing this story to its end. It will not fail because he is God. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. And, and not only that, he's not distant. Where is he? He says, behold, I am with you. The one who made the stars is with you. The one who rose from the grave is with you always. He is applying to your heart this story script, helping you to learn to follow him on every stage where he puts you. He is teaching you to relate on his stage by his grace. And he's sending you in his name right where you are. And as he sends you to the ends of the earth, he will always be with you. This is how we keep going as a disciple-making family. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to live by a script, biblically, relationally, missionally. Father, uh, we pray for your grace. We repent, Lord, that we have followed other scripts. Lord, some of us are pumped up right now. Lord, direct that energy to live a long obedience in the direction of faithfulness to our Savior, to witness to him with our bodies, with all that we are. Some of us, Lord, are mad because pastor stepped on my toes. God, if, if that's us right now, help us to go to you in prayer. Help us to hear your question, why are you angry? And help us to do business with you as we seek to be disciples who follow you. Lord, some of us have lost hope. And so I pray you'd take hold of us and fill us with the saving hope, the resurrection hope of our risen Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.